Welcome to the final episode of In a Warming World, a podcast that critically examines cultural narratives that minimize climate change in order to reveal how ecological social change is not only possible, but necessary. I'm Moira Marquis, a postdoctoral fellow at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. In this series, we've addressed the ways climate concerns are stymied and undermined through explanations that reduce climate collapse to a kind of inevitability. While we've addressed proposed solutions to each of these framings that focus on one aspect, economy, politics, or the idea of being human, in this episode, we're going to look at an explanation for climate collapse that is systemic and similarly offers a systemic solution. What if climate collapse is understood as a result of colonization? a cultural system that introduced and imposed environmentally damaging social models like monocrop agriculture, an economic model that demands infinite growth, and the idea of humans as individuals who exist above and apart from other life. If understood in this way, although the colonial cultural model is pervasive, it's not the only one. Thinking through climate change as a creation of colonialism, this episode will also explore alternative cultural models for growing food, exchanging goods, and being human that can offer practical alternatives. We hope this final episode will serve as an uplifting and compelling way to not only understand why climate change is happening, but what we can do about it. Alrighty. Uh, hello, everyone. My name's Luke Ewan Johnson, and I'm a sophomore studying biology and English with a chemistry minor. I think this unit has been the most interesting and eye-opening for me so far in, in the semester because it really brings together all of the other topics we've covered, from the supposedly inescapable human nature that creates social hierarchies to the economics of colonization and spreading capitalism at the expense of minority groups, to the indifference that the global north has towards the climate change issues that they are primarily responsible for. I saw all of these as major players in climate colonization. I think I was particularly struck by how we redefine the word advanced because it really made me think about my own life and the social structures that I've perpetuated. This Western colonizer attitude is so deeply entrenched in so many climate issues, including the white futurisms that emphasize the idea of humanity is all equally at fault. It's a bit of a strange topic for me personally because I'm half English and half Cantonese, so I'm part of both parties without kind of fully being part of either. So in some ways I benefit and lose out at the same time. But to the point of advancement, I hadn't really thought in depth about how indigenous cultures have done a far better job at preserving and coexisting with their environment and that they have so much to teach us, so much to teach us in reversing the damages done by Western colonizers. The readings from In the Footsteps of Nana Bojo and the, World for, the Word for World is Forest made me think far beyond anything that has been given to me in middle or high school. And I'm really looking forward to hearing what you guys think of these readings. Hi, I'm Jaden Harris. I'm a sophomore double majoring in biology and English with a minor in medical anthropology. I've enjoyed this unit a lot because it's helped open my eyes to a topic that I hadn't really thought critically about before. Um, it's easy to think of colonization as a thing of the past, so to speak, but the effects of colonization can be seen in our everyday life and the way that our culture operates. The common theme that I saw in the reading that really interested me is the difference between indigenous and non-indigenous or colonizer cultures. 
In all of our past units, we've seen traces of a colonizer narrative, such as the sense of entitlement to the land instead of respect towards it, putting a greater importance on making a profit so that some people have to choose between like fighting for the environment or getting enough money to put food on the table um, or spreading enlightenment ideals and promoting them over native knowledge. A lot of the readings also discuss the ways that we could bridge the gap between cultures to make a more functional society that lets go of the colonizer narrative that's been instilled in our culture. So the readings that I that really stuck out to me this unit were the two stories from Braiding Sweetgrass and The Word for World is Forest. And I'm excited to see what you guys think about the readings and the unit in general. Hi everyone, I'm Amanda Chow. I'm a senior at UNC Chapel Hill from Roanoke Rapids, North Carolina. I'm majoring in anthropology and I have minors in chemistry and food studies. I signed up for this particular podcast as I was really drawn to the theme of colonization in the cultural context. As a daughter of Vietnamese immigrants, I have some experience with the diaspora's symptoms from colon colonialism and how that translates into the day-to-day -day life and how that's transmitted through generations. All of that to say that I haven't really given thought to the connection between the environment and colonial narratives. But like Jaden said, it all seems like it's part of a distant past. The environment is something that we can imagine as uh, uh, something we should actively protect while colonization is an issue that happened in the past, but this could not be farther from reality. From class, we've learned about how indigenous communities are fighting for the land they live on, fighting for hyper-regulated foodscapes, and protesting the corporations that are trying to modify their home. All of these examples are a direct effect of the hundreds of years of accumulated colonial rhetoric. I look forward to exploring how the paternalistic views that colonial narratives have, such as in Ursula Le Guin's novel, The World for World is Forest, and in the movie Avatar. They're dampening the voices that need to be amplified, which are in indigenous communities. I'm also excited to talk about ways in which we can decolonize the environmental approaches and even reimagine what it means to care for the environment with everyone. Hi, my name is Kylie Mazel, and I am a senior studying neuroscience and advertising with public relations in the School of Media and Journalism. Despite my academic career focusing heavily on both arts and sciences, my free time is often spent engaging in political discourse, making active efforts to reduce my carbon footprint, and evaluating the implications of colonization on marginalized folks in our communities. I'm passionate about these efforts because they are vastly underrepresented in the climate conversation and are the backbone of some of the most important movements that are fighting and have fought for positive change. These issues are both personal and distant as a minority with a queer identity and a partially American Indian heritage and simply as a human. The magnitude of the climate crisis should be a concern carried by all. But investigating further into the history and the impact of colonization on these processes is a necessary step in making sure we don't repeat history. Understanding the details of what our ancestral human relations looked like help us navigate the collective traumas of certain groups and help explain how we got where we are today. I don't think many people consider deeply the influence of colonization and its structures of supremacy on our lives today which is why I particularly enjoyed reading Allegiance to Gratitude and I'm looking forward to discussing climate and colonization in our discussion. Mindfulness and gratitude practices are so grounding for me today that thinking about starting these habits years ago as the author describes in the grade schools uh, could have helped me manage my generalized anxiety and made me more mentally prepared to take on a school day with less of a feeling of obligation and more of a feeling of privilege and awareness. Perhaps many patriots would fight against any removal of the pledge and similar practices of allegiance in the United States, 
Uh, but I would even argue that it's more patriotic to absorb and take the time to appreciate the true gifts of the American soil and our culture, which is now riddled with ungrateful attitudes and waste. Perhaps we would even be less wasteful and more appreciative, giving us a valuation of our belongings and surroundings. I genuinely think of gratitude practice could be universalized and it is a part of the climate colonization conversation, which might even have the power to shift the culture of an entire generation. Hello everyone, my name is Sakari Law and I'm currently a junior majoring in English. I never had the greatest understanding of climate change, which is why I took this class. My initial understanding of climate change as colonization was entirely backwards. I read the title of this unit as meaning that climate change was something being used to justify colonization. The reading on the importance of a date for decolonizing the Anthropocene discussed how climate change was a result of colonization, which completely reframed my own understanding. With that being said, I want to tap into how colonization has influenced these misconceptions and what this might mean for climate skeptics today. I want to focus particularly on how our limited colonially inherited ways of knowing leaves us unable to reconcile with the past in reference to colonialism and unable to change our negative climate impacts. I want to draw attention to the reading title Allegiance to Gratitude because it shows how what we value ultimately shows what we are capable of. I'm excited to have this conversation and learn from each of you. Hi everyone, my name is Zoe Madike and I am a sophomore at UNC who is a psychology major on the pre-med track. And as a person who is black in America and also of Nigerian descent, I have always known colonization to be a major part of my history. How I have never really deep dived deeper into the extent that it affected the world around me and especially how it affected indigenous people. I was very much intrigued in this um, unit to learn more about the effects that colonization had directly on those uh, on indigenous people who we don't oftentimes don't hear about. The readings that particularly got me interested in this topic were in the footsteps of Nanobozo and on the importance of a date decolonizing the Anthropocene. As it describes what many people really think led to climate change that we're experiencing now and the beliefs that Native Americans had about the earth around them. Hi, I'm Wilhelmina Bradway and I'm a senior from Jacksonville, North Carolina. I'm studying biology at UNC Chapel Hill, and that's part of why I chose to take this eco-criticism class. It's been an incredible semester learning about how science surrounding climate change is received and interpreted outside my usual echo chamber of the classroom. This unit on climate change and colonization has been the most challenging and rewarding so far because it has required me to face a lot of history and privilege in my own life. The impact of colonization on my family and my history has been, in all honesty, difficult for me to figure out. This unit, and specifically my preparation for this podcast, encouraged me to ask my dad and my grandma about the effects that leaving Germany during the Holocaust had on my great-grandparents, and whether or not they found that migration to be a result of colonization. If we operate under the assumption that an act of colonization consists of establishing control over the indigenous people of an area, then perhaps, but this leads us to the question of whether the people of Germany and the myriad of other countries that Hitler established control over were indigenous. Many absolutely were, but in the case of my family, they were not. My great-grandparents were naturalized citizens of Germany, but their ancestors were from the Levant region in Asia that now includes Palestine, Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, and Iraq. Because of this, it seems to be the case that their escape to America was the result, was the result of colonization, but not of their own colonization. They were already displaced once before the Holocaust began. At this point in my life, I don't know if it's possible for me to be native to anywhere. 
I live in a country that is completely foreign to anybody farther than three generations back in my family. I benefit from white privilege and a colonizer society as a result of the pressure to assimilate that was placed on my brown grandmother, who married a white man and stopped speaking Yiddish outside her parents' house. When they were in danger of being casualties of a massive genocide, my great-grandparents took refuge in this country, which has so recently been the site of a massive genocide against its own native inhabitants. In the span of less than 100 years, my family has lost its language, its traditions, and its religion. Functionally, I don't have a culture, and as my own ancestors were displaced and many were killed, I live in a country stained by the blood of a genocide against the people who lived here first. Their descendants deserve justice and safety, but the colonizer mentality of Western culture makes it incredibly difficult to see the injustices displayed before us every day, or the ways in which the loss of Indigenous knowledge is harming the earth. Even with this history, I, I'm inept at articulating most of the horrors of colonization as we have discussed in class. I've never experienced the collapse of my identity or my culture in real time, and the lessons about colonizer mindsets of possessing versus indigenous mindsets of coexisting in regard to the environment have been vital to broadening my understanding of what needs to take place in order to avoid repeating history. With this in mind, it's probably no surprise that the readings from Braiding Sweetgrass were the ones that most stuck out to me. The questions surrounding what it takes to become naturalized to a place and how to be beneficial to a place I am invasive to are heavy on my mind. I have a quote from the reading in the footsteps of Nana Bozo becoming indigenous to place. Being naturalized to place means to live as if this is the land that feeds you, as if these are the streams from which you drink that build your body and filled your spirit. To become naturalized is to know that your ancestors live and lie in this ground. <laughs> Here you will give your gifts and meet your responsibilities. To become naturalized is to live as if your children's future matters, to take care of the land as if our lives and the lives of all our relatives depend on it, because they do. This is on page 214 to 215. Now how in our 21st century lives can we begin to take care of and coexist with the land in a respectful and beneficial way as Kimmerer asserts is necessary? I can, I can start us off. It's such a big question. And I think that's like, it might be interesting to like answer that maybe at the end of the podcast or something like that, because it's just, it's so big, but I can, I can start on like a small, on a small piece. And it goes back to what Kylie was saying about um, with like allegiance to gratitude and really practicing those small mindfulness habits. Um, I remember from that document, they were speaking about um, every Thanksgiving, um, they really sit down and they have this Thanksgiving address that just goes through sequentially each thing that they're grateful for. And they really kind of return to this natural world that I personally hardly ever think about. Like I I don't think I, I often thank the water or thank the soil or thank the air for being clean. Um, and I think that might be a really great place to start. But um, yeah, just going back to what Kylie was saying about those small mindfulness habits, I think could make a big, big difference. Yeah, I, um, I was particularly struck in, um, in that allegiance to gratitude piece, uh, just about how open and willing that the young people that were engaging in these practices were and how like just even imagining how much it must have blossomed their perspective of life and their awareness and their um, mindfulness of their environment and just taking a second to really absorb and think about the privilege and their you know their even their access to schooling because they're doing this um, in a similar timing as um, those of us who grew up in the United States did the Pledge of Allegiance in the morning and um, thinking about it more of like a personal experience, like what, what can I touch and feel and think about um, rather than having some, you know, kind of distant respect for people who 
uh, have served the country or, you know, these problematic histories that we aren't, we aren't taught as early on as we probably should have been. Um, and that I think is a really big deal, especially because it's such a personal experience to practice that gratitude and to, to look back on your environment and the things around you to, to take those in. And I think that's even kind of inherently, um, you know, indigenous to look to the nature and to look to the, the pieces of life that, that give us what we have today. And um, it all kind of comes back full circle, I think. Yeah, as I was reading like in the footsteps of Nana Bozo in Braden Sweetcross, like it really struck out to me how they said it was crazy how most of us, we don't even know the names of the plate of the plants around us and we don't know the names of like the nature and we don't take time to really like be mindful of the surroundings of us. And it like, it just made sense to me how they say like settlers live, live as if they have like one foot on shore and one foot on, the, on a boat. And they have, and they how they had kind of like a rootless past, and they need to learn like they need to unlearn the ways of like kudzu, and become like more like naturalized and indigenous to the world around us. I think also if we just recognize that like it's going to take a lot to change our culture and change our society. So starting small. Um, kind of just like waking up every day and being like yes I'm thankful for like the tree in my yard or like the stream down the street and then from there maybe growing into a more like since I'm thankful for the stream that's kind of like in my neighborhood I can organize a river cleanup to help take care of it and just having everyone start doing that um, could probably help out a lot too. Yeah, Jaden, I'm glad that you brought up this point around how we sort of need to shift our mentality of like how we think about the world around us and how we live. Um, because one of my biggest questions is, you know, how can, you know, climate skeptics who question Western scientific knowledge be able to instead understand climate change through indigenous ways of knowing, acting, and believing? Because no, colonialism is something that has happened and we all know that that has happened. It's a fact that you can't argue or dispute. Um, so why don't we take, you know, why don't we make the effort to know about the past and attempt to understand those who were affected the most by it? Would, would this help climate skeptics who might be quick to disregard what is put out there by modern scientists as scientific proof? Would this ultimately shift this debate people have around climate change? because I feel like this does emphasize a need for indigenous knowledge and conversations around climate change. We have learned that knowledge doesn't necessarily always have to be about what has been studied by scientists over like the past several years. Knowledge can be granted through what has been learned through our everyday interactions. And this is the focal point of indigenous knowledge, knowledge that is relational. So going back to the reading that was titled Allegiance to Gratitude, it heavily focuses on giving thanks to natural elements such as the sun, the trees and earth waters and things like that. And so it's interesting to take a look at what this might mean for you know, climate skeptics. It seems like when you shift your relationship to earth processes, you start to become more willing to appreciate what life looks like rather than question it. And this appreciation ultimately would encourage us to act more diligently in our ways and to understand how our actions influence the world around us for better or for worse. For worse. And I also just want to add really quickly, I think that there's no coincidence that much of the language in allegiance, I'm sorry, allegiance to gratitude emphasizes the idea of unity. 
we see the phrases, now our minds are one, repeated several times throughout the reading. And another unifying phrase states that the Thanksgiving address is a reminder that we cannot hear too often, that we are not in charge of the world, but we are all subject to the same forces as all of the rest of life. And now I do wanna take a step back and say that I understand that climate skeptics have different view viewpoints and understand that they, own, they have their own different reasons for skepticism. They don't all hold the same level of skepticism, but since we are all in this life together, why don't we instead act on the chance that climate change is actually happening and have colonizers efforts to subjugate indigenous peoples and other nations shape how we imagine ourselves in relation to our neighbors and to the world around us? And not just climate skeptics, but can we encourage people to want better for the sake of the humanity that does feel like the world is suffering? I really loved um, in Allegiance to Gratitude, the quote where the author states that, quote, you can't listen to the Thanksgiving address without feeling wealthy. Um, in a consumer, a consumer society, contentment is a radical proposition. Recognizing abundance rather than scarcity undermines an economy that thrives by creating unmet desires. Um, they also said that gratitude cultivates an ethic of fullness where the economy needs emptiness. And I really loved that quote because of its reference to um, just the different ethics behind the Thanksgiving address that those, um, those young students recited instead of the pledge or in place of that. Because when we think about the society that we participate in and how we contribute to this consumer society and how we have grown into these patterns of overconsumption or just even a societal stance of you know, valuing people who have more over people who have less. I think it's just incredibly deviant from the indigenous ways and that there's so much to be learned and so much to take away from, from their perspective. And it's way more sustainable. That was one thing that I really was shocked by and just thought about, a lot about in reading that piece was um, how much more sustainable those ways of thinking and living are because when they're operating in a way of gratitude and you know just really appreciating every piece that contributes to their lives, there isn't a culture of overconsumption. There isn't just waste that's gone everywhere. It's, um, it's so intentional and I really loved that. And I really loved thinking about it because it made me more aware of how I can practice similar things on a day to day. I think that those are all really good points. I especially like uh, Jaden's idea of like, we begin gratitude with everyday actions. We begin it on a small scale. Like, so when I was reading the Allegiance to Gratitude um, reading, it felt really weird and dystopian to me because I did not know that in American public schools, every morning you had to recite the Pledge of Allegiance uh, because I was homeschooled. And when I was reading that, I was like, nah, that's fake. No way. Because like just the dichotomy between forced gratitude for your country and just like uh, a spirit of gratitude for the world that we see like between the colonizer culture and indigenous cultures was whiplash for me. It was culture shock. And I live here. Um, and I absolutely think that like 
learning to be grateful by like maybe not leaving my sprinklers on because like water isn't infinite and we're in a drought or by planting flowers that support our local pollinators because like they need all the help they can get and I am grateful for the services that they provide to the ecosystem is a place to start yeah, and like one cool one quick thing, because I know we also want to get to the other readings, but um, a lot of this talk, like what Mina and Zoe was saying about um, like learning more about the, like learning more specific things about the world around us, reminds me of like the point about resanctifying our world and like kind of growing an appreciation beyond just like its physical presence on our earth or like a physical presence of a plant in front of us. Um, I know that we talked about in lecture, um, I think the name is Mishu Piju of like Michigan and how like in those surrounding areas biodiversity is a lot greater because the native people have such a profound appreciation and um, the the thought is that you will be punished if you don't treat this water in a way that um, it deserves to be treated and so I think even that kind of like slight change in the way we approach the world around us and objects around us as, as kind of more than just what we can physically see and and how we can utilize them to make tools or like use them for human benefit. Um, I think that could really go a long way in just in just kind of reframing and resanctifying the world around us. Cool. So I wanted to shift our conversation to the word for world is forest, and I want to ask you guys what your opinion is on the kind of paternalistic. Uh, view of this white colonizer in the book, Don Davidson. So I guess taking a step back and talking about science fiction novels and post-apocalyptic worlds in general, often there is this white heroine or hero uh, that is going to like a new land or a new planet, such as in the book. And they really just take over in terms of restructuring the entire environment to uh, receive all these resources and even enslave the others or the native population uh, of the new world. So I'm wondering you got, if you guys think that this narrative is uh, something empowering to you or uh, something that's kind of, kind of destructive. And one quote I'll also add is primitive, primitive races always have to give way to civilized ones. And so I'm wondering if you guys think that is true as well. I personally think that this is like a very destructive narrative idea because it kind of forces the idea of like assimilation or the idea of like all the primitive cultures must give way to the civilized ones when like who really defines what is primitive or what is civilized like just because someone has a different lifestyle than you doesn't mean that they're less than you so I think that always displaying this um very like white heroine or hero going over and taking over the resources is a very destructive narrative that probably encourages a lot of bad ideas. Yeah, whenever I read about it or um, even watch movies with uh, this type of uh, story, I feel like, oh, it's like, oh, they're having so much fun, but that that's not me and that can't be me because they're white. Um, yeah, I think it's really kind of mean and really discredits indigenous knowledge as when we kind of put our own feelings and our own uh, ways of thinking as well as knowledge systems. And we impose that on the other as if they can't make decisions for themselves or you know are too naive. And I think this book did a great job of otherizing the humans in the book and uh, allowing the indigenous species to 
be at the forefront of knowledge and uh, and thinking and kind of the yeah, stuff there. I absolutely agree with um, Jaden and Amanda's points and even um, Luke's points from your introduction about like what is advanced really and who gets to decide that. Um, throughout history, I think there's definitely been like a huge amount of like ethnocentrism involved in who gets to decide what is advanced. And the the idea of like a hierarchy of advancement and of more primitive societies uh, being like eventually overtaken by more quote advanced societies the inevitability of that I think is really damaging and it's been used a lot to justify acts of genocide in the past and I think that that is really well displayed in the word for world is forest yeah I think um just like what Mina and Amanda have been talking about, like there's there's like a, I know a lot of people use the term like colorblindness um, because it's like a very convenient means of saying like, oh, you know, like let's just like start fresh. We're gonna like start from here, start from square one as if like the past didn't happen. Um, and I definitely see that so much with like apocalyptic narratives as if this kind of like apocalypse is against humanity because humanity can be grouped into one single category um, as if we're all equally responsible for the climate crisis. And yeah, I mean, it, it, I feel like it gets, it makes me so angry seeing the white savior complex come up in like award-winning movies where it's just, it's all about how they can overcome, they individually can overcome the difficulties that humanity faced when really it is that kind of that global whiteness that is a lot of the cause of what we're experiencing now. I wanted to ask you guys about um, the movie Avatar because I know we watched that um, just last week, but um, how you think this white savior complex factors in, um, but also how it was challenged in this movie. Because I, I think it's like, it's an interesting situation of the, the white man goes against the humans, but at the same time, it's still the white man who saves the day. So I'm, I'm curious to hear what you guys think about that. Going back to what you mentioned about the white savior complex, I find it very interesting how, you know, the white community can come in and take over, for example, like the earth or like the Americas. And then eventually we see this uh, pattern of the environment being degraded and depleted of uh, resources. And then they will find a new like planet, for example, to extract more resources and think that that is progress and that they're in a sense like helping this community uh, through industrialization or stealing and uh, murdering people. So I think it's very interesting how they, they still in the end look and perceive themselves as a victor and as someone as, as, champ as championing uh, progress and equality almost. I think it's so interesting to think of the positionality of Avatar when it came out. I don't know if many or anyone remembers when it came out, like how big of a deal that it was, how long it was, all of the um, the technology that went into to creating it, I think was a big piece of the discussion. But I don't think there was much, I mean, at least to my from my perspective, there wasn't a whole lot of climate or colonization conversation that came out of it. And re-watching it recently, it seems like such a big part of the movie. And so like such a big part of, um, my analysis and like evaluating 
or breaking down the film and thinking about the pieces of it and the dynamic between the characters. And it just, it was so striking to me watching it again now, thinking about that dynamic and how there wasn't a whole lot of climate conversation when it came out. Yeah, I agree. Like when I first watched it when I was a kid, like I just, I didn't really like, like you don't take time to really like see what's happening in the movie and of course you don't understand it and now just like watching back, like watching back like I really see like the white savior narrative in the um in the movie and I really see how like the indigenous people's like knowledge is like overlooked and instead like the white savior's knowledge is like the main one that they were at first going off of. And even, I think even potentially it's it's still seen that way by a more general public. Uh, I think we have an, a unique perspective after doing all of this research, doing all of these readings and thinking about this conversation a lot more. But perhaps like a thought that crossed my mind was just that it may not actually be very different from when it came out um, as far as other people that have watched and enjoy this movie. Um, and that, I think, is a reflection of our culture and our culture of um, that white supremacy, um, human supremacy over natural forces, over other beings, um, you know, all theoretical because it's a <laughs> it's a cinematic universe, right? But um, it's just so interesting to think about how that reflects on our culture and how um, as we reflect on these pieces and um, the dynamic of the film, just thinking about how it's still very prevalent. And I think though we have the privilege of knowing this perspective, I don't know that that's the case for everyone who watches and enjoys it. Yeah, I entirely agree with the points that like everybody has made so far about this movie Avatar um, and this idea of like the white saber complex. And I think also one other thing I do wanna mention um, about the movie is how it does portray its characters as being like foreign and alien. And again, that does also contribute to this idea of like needing somebody to come and take control of people because they quote unquote don't or are less evolved, which is entirely problematic. And so I do remember watching this movie when I was a kid, like when it first came out, I was super fascinated um the movie itself just I don't know it just kind of captivated me and I think that that's an interesting thing to note because now I do feel like I am more aware of understanding the issues that surround this movie as we've already discussed um again just sort of like going back to this idea of how when I was a kid I was watching it I was so captivated by it I feel like that is also a problem too because it's like why is this movie having this effect on people where they don't initially recognize what issues it's causing and why is it that when we watch this movie the first go around it just seems like something that leaves us in awe is there like a reason behind that is there some level of I don't know, this might be going on a tangent, but is this contributed to this whole inherited colonial mindset of, wow, like you see something that is quote unquote different or 
quote unquote foreign and it's like, you know, you just kind of don't know how to respond to it initially. And it doesn't have you think about how it's so problematic from the beginning. Yes, I think the colonial narrative does uh, create this brighter and better picture of this future and this like new place. Uh, and I think at the root of it, it's ultimately uh, a cop out for specifically white people to disregard, you know, the feelings of others to make themselves like feel better about um, all like the wrong they have done in the past, you know, and uh, saying like, oh, it's okay because I have, I can like start fresh in this new place and I can do whatever I want. And then when it goes um, really bad, I can just start again. And I think uh, there's undertones of uh, things that we've talked about, um, such as like white privilege. And I know we threw around this word supremacy as well. I was, I was gonna say, um, I'm interested to hear what you guys think good practices for solutions might be and how, we can move forward um, erasing and going back and like circling back on these shortcomings and how we have all talked about that we've um, set aside or underrepresented these indigenous people's viewpoints and perspectives and just how we can come back now and, and do better by their cultures and their communities and their thoughts and, and practices. I know um, one of my thoughts was just addressing the, the hesitation that Indigenous people might feel um, to share their knowledge and their experience, um, forming these stable and mutually beneficial relationships, um, and having and be, to having that access to their to their insights um, and the elders that carry the knowledge needed to gather information to develop useful research is another thing that I've thought of. Um, just having that open channel of communication and um, acknowledging that over hundreds of years that their knowledge has been exploited. And so they've been hesitant to share that because even in places where we do carry on these uh, historic practices, even um, outside of indigenous communities, I know someone mentioned in our discussion in class, uh, yoga being an example and how we don't attribute it to any roots. And it's one of those colonized practices that um, it would take more attention to detail, more care uh, to go back and, and attribute those correctly and give credit where it's due to acknowledge that knowledge and that um, contribution and how we use and utilize the practices of indigenous people throughout history. So those lines of open communication and um, spreading that extra knowledge going the extra mile to talk more about the roots of these practices that we have made into to common parts of our lives now. Yeah, absolutely. I think like another thing, and this brings us back to one of the readings, which is uh, decolonializing the Anthropocene, um, was it was a paper in which Davis urges the International Geological Congress or the IGC to date the Anthropocene to include colonialism rather than just include kind of the advent of like coal engine and coal power. Um, I'd be super interested to hear what you guys think about that because I know a lot of people mentioned it in their intro, um, but what the repercussions would be in terms of coming out of the Anthropocene and when we would finish this epoch. Um, and then also just what that would mean in terms of our, our impact on the world and how that official recognition and kind of placing blame where blame is due could be another great step in, in really recognizing 
these impacts of colonialism? Yeah, I definitely think like saying that the um, beginning of the Anthropocene should be around the 1600s is necessary because like that's like definitely that's when like colonization with the white settlers like really started and I feel like because like the other day I know it's like around the 1920s or so like I feel like that involves like more of the human race than just like the settlers that really came with colonization and started like start, that's like where like capitalism really like took off to what it is now and really affected the climate change as we know it today. I think that dating it back to um, when colonization started would also force us to start accurately representing history as what actually happened rather than what um, like a rose tinted view of what happened, like how it currently is represented. And I think that would also be kind of circling back to Kylie's question, um, a good way to start like bridging the gaps between scientific knowledge and indigenous knowledge is like actually acknowledging what happened in their past and our past and making sure that we do right by them instead of just trying to wipe it clean and start over with a new slate because we can't do that. In that reading, it also says by linking the Anthropocene with colonization, it draws attention to the violence at its core and calls for the consideration of indigenous philosophies and processes of indigenous self-governance. And I think, yeah, I really agree that the Anthropocene should be, uh, have its origins in colonization, uh, just for this fact where if we recognize like the wrong and the violence that it has caused, we can, uh, start by undoing that uh, by like first recognizing it and uh, then giving indigenous peoples this due process of regaining back their uh, self-determination and power in general. All right, I think um, just wrapping up this podcast, we can like each talk about maybe one of our, our biggest takeaways or one takeaway that um, we'll bring with us. For me personally, I think the biggest thing, not the biggest thing, there's so many big things in this unit, but um, one thing that will always stick out to me is the idea of just kind of being cynical of what I've been brought up in and constantly knowing to challenge the mindset that I've grown up with and that have, has kind of been put on me because um, so much of that is influenced by capitalism and colonialism. Um, but I feel like I've learned so many things in this unit that I didn't I didn't even question at first and now is kind of making me reframe um, a lot of things just from consumer culture um, to just the way I view the natural world in a utilitarian aspect. I think just changing so much of that thought process is something I'll, I'll keep with me. I think for my final takeaway, um, it's that I can like make a little change in my day every day to just improve myself and the way that I treat the world around me um, and encourage others to do it too, since this is a group effort to kind of like uh, start to take care of the world again. So just making sure that I'm doing what I can to kind of erase the, or not erase, but to undo the negative impacts of colonization and climate change. For me, it's realizing the small and little ways in which I try to um, act in a colonizer fashion and 
take a step back and realize, oh, sometimes what I'm trying to impose on others or uh, when I kind of uplift myself into this place of thinking that I know what's best, I should really uh, think about and sit on what the other, the person or, you know, people group that I'm otherizing, what their views are and uh, translating this into environmentalism, just realizing that what I think is best for the earth probably uh, might not be that great. I also um, relate to that a lot, Amanda, and I think my biggest takeaway is just that spirit of mindfulness and awareness of my thoughts and and just in the spirit of Thanksgiving, um, the allegiance to gratitude, thinking about how I can override those previous thought processes of just keep moving, keep using, keep doing whatever I need to do to increase my own productivity. Whereas there is so much value in slowing down, thinking about where things have come from, how I can benefit from these things, um, and just giving more value to the to the items around myself, and just walking through the thought process of where these things came from, and all of the the value that those things hold, and the the value of the knowledge of the indigenous people that care so deeply about these things and how much that we consume from the earth. I think my biggest thing, my biggest takeaway would have to be to just continue learning. Um, I kind of mentioned this in the beginning, like I did not have the best knowledge about climate change. And that was my initial reason for taking this class. Um, but I don't think that the learning stops you know, kind of with this conversation that we've had and just like with this class that we've taken, just continue to understand um, climate change, understand indigenous knowledge, understand things on so many levels and to hold myself accountable to making the effort to learn about it. Yeah, my takeaway is very similar to both Kylie's and Sakari's. And I just definitely want to practice like mindfulness about just the world around me and just take, um, employ like lots of just strategies to just help the environment in, in the small ways that I can, because I just know that even the small ways can make a huge difference. I think my final thoughts revolve around the central idea that colonizer mentality overall lacks respect. It lacks respect for nature by considering it a pile of resources instead of a powerful force of life that we need to learn to coexist with. And it lacks respect for indigenous people by keeping the idea of a hierarchy of advancement. Respect and gratitude go hand in hand. And moving forward from this class, I personally will keep growing to respect the world I live in. Thank you for listening. project has been generously supported by UNC Chapel Hill's Office for the Vice Provosts for Global Affairs and the Chancellor's Global Education Fund through a collaborative online learning grant, as well as the Digital Humanities Lab in the Department of English and Comparative Literature.